morning. Well, it's, uh, it's really great being here and having our own church prayed for uh, by you all. And uh, we pray for you at Sterling Park Baptist Church. And so it's good to be here and put some faces with the name that uh, we're really familiar with. Um, I may be more familiar with you than you are with me. So I go back with uh, Nick and Allison about 18 years. So uh, when I was a freshman in college, Nick and Allison were faithfully working the welcome desk uh, of our college ministry in Raleigh. Nick was working at IBM, um, taking seminary classes, uh, working his way while faithfully serving uh, the church there. It's been uh, a real uh, privilege to watch the Lord's work through them, watch him work through them here at Franconia. Um, And now you get another one of my favorite people as uh, pastor over you now. So I, you know, David refers to me as a mentor to him. I look up to him in so many ways, ways in which you'll get to know over time. I'm just so, so grateful that the Lord has worked it out for him to serve here, for you all to be blessed by the ways in which uh, he has gifted David. David's a gifted, humble man. I'm I'm really grateful that he's um, been called here. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 6 today, so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. It's on page 891, my Bible, if that matches yours, that's great. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's, it's towards the back, if that's what you're looking for. Let's pray quickly, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for this time together. So grateful for this church family. Uh, It's like meeting family members that I haven't I've been able to meet yet, kind of a glimpse of eternity for us, I guess. Uh, what a great honor it is to be here today. Lord, we come to sit under your word, and we pray that you would teach us spiritual things by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard it said uh, that you are what you eat. I don't know if you know that phrase, it goes back to 1826, there's a French lawyer who'd become a bit of a foodie of the time, and he wrote one day, he said, tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. The phrase kind of resurfaced a hundred years later when a nutritionist used it in association with bad food. He said, 90% of the diseases known to man are caused by cheap foodstuffs. You are what you eat. The point being that it's been recognized that when it comes to your body, when it comes to your physical self, you're only as healthy as the food on which you feast. What you eat makes you into what you are. And what we're going to see this morning in John 6 is that this principle holds true not only in the physical, but also, at least in a way, in the spiritual. When it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to the state, when it comes to the health of your soul, you are what you eat. In other words, if you tell me what it is your faith eats, what it is your faith lives on, I'll tell you what you are. The main thing I think we need to see from John this morning is the good news that there is a God in heaven who wants you to feast on what's good. And because of this, in his great mercy, God has sent down food from heaven. 
This food has eternal, blessed, happy life in it. And whoever eats this heavenly food will be just that, eternally happy, eternally blessed. So this is good news that I bring to you this morning. So if this is true, this raises a few questions. So what is this food from heaven? Where do we find it? How do we eat this food? What will it do to us? What's the result of this eating? So I just want to work through a few of these things, a few of these questions, one by one, in the book this morning. So first, this question, well, what is this heavenly food? So in order to answer this question, I think it'll be helpful to take some time to get a sense of how things have been building in the book of John. So maybe you're familiar with the Gospel of John, maybe you're not. Just a quick overview, at least regarding this theme. The really important thing I think we should note is that from the very beginning of John's gospel, there's a lot of talk about life. You see this very clearly in chapter 1. It's talking about Jesus, this Son of God who's come from heaven, and in him is life, John says. You see this in John 3, one of the most, maybe the most famous verse in all of Scripture, right? John 3, 16, he has come to bring eternal life. In chapter 4, Jesus doesn't just talk about this. He begins to show it through different encounters that he has. John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well, and he asks for some water, and then he offers her water, right? But what kind of water does he offer her? From the well? He offers her living water, water of life. Just a few verses later, an officer comes to him with a request for his dying son. What's the request? Life. Give my son life, which is exactly what Jesus does. John chapter 5, Jesus begins his teaching on his relationship with the heavenly father. And his point is that the father has life in, his, in himself, which means the son has life in himself. In the son, there is life. You see this point? John 1 through 6, life, life, life. And then we make our way to chapter 6, and what do we have? Crowds are following Jesus because of all these great things that he's doing. But they're not eating because they're busy following him. So Jesus ascends a mountain, he looks out on the crowd, and he gives them what? Bread. From five loaves of bread, he feeds 5,000. John has been working hard in the narrative so far to highlight certain elements and have us as readers hold them together. Themes that will be continued to be held together throughout the gospel. And those elements are life and bread and Jesus. And this connection, it's not lost on the people in the narrative, is it? So they see that there is a connection being made. It's just that they kind of get the meaning all wrong. They get the wires crossed between life and bread and Jesus and how that works. It's like me wiring a fan in our living room, which still doesn't light up. It will turn on and it will rotate, but I don't know how to get the light, right? So you rewire, you get the connection wrong, you get no light. That's what's happening here in John chapter 6. The crowds are seeing what Jesus is doing. They see, they hear the different elements, Jesus, bread, life, blessing. And they deduce very simply, well, if you, if you hang around Jesus, he is good enough and he is powerful enough 
to give you stuff, to bless you. And it's actually in this light, for this reason, that they try. Look down in verse 15 of chapter 6. They try to take Jesus by force to be their king. You see that? They're like, can, can you imagine how good it would be if this dude were in charge of everything? He just keeps in his power just giving us good things. What does Jesus do when he hears of this plan to forcibly make him king over them? He runs away. He escapes to a mountain by himself. He rejects it. It should tell us something. Evidently, the crowds following Jesus, they're holding the right things together, life, bread, Jesus, but in the wrong way. The crowd wants a more abundant life, which means they need more bread, which is why they want Jesus to hang around, preferably if he could be our king, that would be great. So even after he runs away from them, even after he walks on water away from them, the crowd tracks Jesus down. And when they do, in light of their great perseverance, Jesus takes the opportunity to kind of rewire these connections. This brings us to chapter 6, verse 25. We're going to pick up there. John 6, 25. When they had found him on the... Excuse me. Uh, yeah, there it is, 25. When they had found him on the other side of the sea... They, the crowd, said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Right, so they finally catch back up to Jesus. And they're like, how in the world did you get here? And Jesus answers them, right? He enters into a dialogue with them. But notice that he's not interested in talking about logistics, like how he got here, which would have been a really cool story, but he doesn't talk about that. He determines that this discussion is not going to be about how we all got here. His interest is helping them to see why it is that they follow him with such a zealous eagerness. He says, let's think, why did you just cross a sea to get after me, to get me after I ran away from you? Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. These people had traveled miles and miles. They had evidently rowed across a sea just to get to Jesus. And how does he greet them? With a rebuke. He says, with a question, he says, the only reason you're here is because I filled you up with bread. Evidently, there's a certain type of follower that Jesus does not want. Who is it? It's those who work to get to him only because he has the power to fill their bellies or their bank accounts or their social status, whatever it might be. And here's where Jesus begins to rewire these connections. Look there in verse 27 and 28. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. 
So Jesus offers his first correction, his first rewiring. And what is it? He says, he tells the crowds that they're working for the wrong bread in the wrong way. You see that? So through their own works, they're seeking food that goes bad. And Jesus says, that's not a smart thing to do. Rather, instead, what they should seek is food that does not go bad through God's works. And what is the work of God? Look at verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in he, in he whom he has sent. Jesus is calling these people to the work of what? Belief. That is of faith. He's calling, to, he's calling them to the work of not working. Jesus' message, what you actually want, what you actually need, is not this food, but eternal food. And what you need to do to get it is not work for it, but trust God for it. You receive the food that will never perish by trusting God enough not to work for it. And how do the crowds respond to this call of faith? With a challenge. Look at verse 30. They don't say, okay, we believe. What do they say? Verse 30. So they said to him, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's amazing, understandable, but amazing unbelief. Verse 31. They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, so you see, the crowd has Correctly, they were beginning to view Jesus as some kind of Moses figure, right? So Jesus has led them through the wilderness. He spoke from the mountain. He provided bread. And so here they challenge him to see if he's really greater than Moses or not. All right, so they say, essentially, we just read about this, Psalm 78, right? They say, listen, way back then, when our fathers were wandering around about to starve, Moses gave them bread from heaven. What are you going to do? verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. <laughs> Jesus says, all right, first of all, let's clarify one thing right from the jump, right? Right, Moses didn't give you anything. My father is the one who gave you heavenly bread who gave your fathers heavenly bread. And second of all, the point right now in this moment, Jesus says, the point is not what the father gave. The point that you need to consider and the point that you and I need to consider is what the father is giving right now. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is teaching them. He's, they're asking for a sign, and he's trying to turn the lights on. He's saying there's something happening right now, people. Something of which that miracle with Israel, with the manna coming down to feed them in the wilderness, that was just a shadow. The real thing is here. Right now, the very bread of God is coming down from heaven to give life to the whole world. Just as in the wilderness days, the Father... This God in heaven 
The Father is looking down from heaven on his lost and starving and dying people all over the world, and he's giving them bread from heaven that will give them eternal life. That's what's happening right now. And how do the people respond? Verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says, the Father is sending life bread from heaven to the world. And what do they say? Can you give it to us? It would be really great if you could give it to us. You see, there's still a problem. The crowd is still seeking something from Jesus. You see, they've, they've come to the point where they trust, they know that Jesus is powerful, that he can do cool things, that he can provide what they need. So when Jesus teaches them that the Father is giving even better bread than he gave their fathers in the wilderness, bread that can give life to the whole world, it's like their eyes light up and they say excitedly, we, we want it, give it to us. They look around, they look behind Jesus, they're like, Where's, where is it, where's the bread? You know, the reality is that the crowd would have been perfectly happy, they would have been perfectly content if Jesus had stopped right there, he had asked for five more loaves of bread and repeated the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000. And then if he did it again and again and again, they would have sought Jesus all over the world, wouldn't they? They would have crossed more seas, they would have done more service, they would have shown more faithfulness so long as Jesus kept filling their bellies with this miracle bread. They'd have been happy if he would do this a hundred times over until they died, just like their fathers in the wilderness. But, critically, this would not give them eternal life. The crowd, up to this point, would have been perfectly happy if Jesus had, had come merely to be useful to them in their lives. You see that? They would have been perfectly happy if Jesus had come to offer his infinite power to meet their unending desires. The crowd would have been perfectly happy if the bread of heaven was nothing more than the sustaining power to live out the lives they've always dreamed of living. This is why Jesus rebuked them, remember, back in verse 26. I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate, you ate, your, fill and you ate your fill of loaves. You know, we, we often think, I don't know if you've ever thought this, I have. We often think, if we could only witness firsthand, if we could only witness God perform a real-life miracle of biblical proportions, uh, faith would be easy at that point. You ever thought that? I could just witness it with my own eyes. That's not always the case in the Bible, is it? No, sometimes... Sometimes witnessing Jesus' power arouses not a desire for him, but a desire to use him to get what we want. This, I think, is what Jesus is rebuking out of the crowds. I think it's what he wants to rebuke out of us. One commentator says, when they saw Jesus, their curiosity was piqued. Their appetites, their political ambitions were aroused, but not their faith. We have to know, church, that it is very possible for a person to witness the power of God 
and to be genuinely moved by it in exactly the wrong way. If we witness the person and the power of Jesus and we are aroused only in our sense of worldly appetite, personal ambition, well then what we found is, at least to us, not a savior but a genie. And what do you do when you've run out of wishes? You have no use for them. We should ask ourselves, what, what is it? What is it that you're laboring for? You're here at church, so I got the unique privilege of, of not going to my church this morning, but kind of puttering around on a Sunday morning. I don't know what people do on a Sunday morning. It was like a, being in a foreign land. There's people out everywhere. You guys, are, you guys are here, right? Beautiful day. Why? Why, why are you laboring? What are you laboring for? Why are you in the game with Jesus? Why are you staying in the game with Jesus? Are you in it for bread that doesn't perish? Are you in the game with Jesus only until he cuts you off financially, materially, or until he let, let your physical health dwindle? Now, it's interesting. It's after this section of teaching that Jesus' national approval ratings take a dive. You notice that? Look down in verse 66. After this, everybody was baptized. What does it say? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What happened? He didn't do another miracle feeding thing. He didn't give them any bread. So they left. Much of the crowd was in it with Jesus for the wrong kind of bread. They were in it for the things that Jesus could give here and now. And when, when he stopped giving, they stopped following. Well then, if this is the wrong way to go about it, then what is this bread? He, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark. Look back at verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And here's the kicker that they weren't quite ready for. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The crowds were here. They were watching intently. They were waiting for some other kind of sleight of hand for Jesus to pull out some hidden bread from under his cloak. But he looks at them with empty hands. And he says, I, he says I'm it. I'm the bread. You see Jesus' revelation? We're asking the wrong question. The, the heavenly food sent by the Father, it's not a what, it's a who. They're asking for another manna giving, another 5,000 feeding. They want to see a thing. They want to see bread. And in this verse, Jesus is trying to help them make the connection from the bread that they've seen in their hands to the man that they see him now, they see now standing in front of them. I am, he says, the bread. The bread you saw multiplied, the bread that you took and ate, the bread that seems small and impotent and improbable, but fed a multitude of people. Remember that? 
I'm the bread. The bread that was blessed and broken and sent and taken in. I'm the bread. He repeats this several times over. Look down and skip down to verse 48. He goes on, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. I am the bread uh, and the bread, excuse me, I, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus, church, is the bread of life. That is, he's the one thing needful. He himself is the source of eternal life. Jesus is the one thing precious. He's the, he's the treasure that you sell everything. He's the treasure in the field that you sell everything to buy. He's the, he's the pearl that you leave everything to find. The point is that Jesus, only Jesus, is the one thing we must leave everything in this life to have because it's only in him that we have everything in eternity. The Father desires to give life to his desperate, lifeless people. And he does this by sending heavenly bread through whom they will have life with him forever. And the bread is Jesus. Jesus' message, I think to sum it up, John Piper puts it well. He sums it up by saying, Jesus' message is, I have come not to give bread, but to be bread. So that's question number one. That's the longest point, by the way. I don't know if that's helpful. What is this life-giving bread from heaven? The answer is that it's not a what. It is a who. The bread that gives eternal life is Jesus. Okay? Okay, then. This brings up a couple more crucial questions. Well, how do we eat the bread? Verse 35 again. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. These crowds, they were following Jesus all across the region, and yet they were, they were missing the main point. They were missing the fact that Jesus came not to give bread, but to be bread. The gift of God they are to eat is Jesus himself. This is, in fact, what Jesus insists on later in the passage. And actually, as the passage goes on and the unbelief of the crowd ramps up, Jesus actually ramps up the metaphorical language. Notice this. Look down in verse 52. The Jews disputed this among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? A perfectly reasonable fleshly question to ask. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus' message, it's very difficult. It's also very simple. I'm the bread, come and eat. That's the message. If you don't, You don't have life. You've got to feed on my flesh 
and drink my blood. That's it. (laughs) That's the requirement. It's what you do with bread. It's what must be done with me, Jesus says. It's a rather scandalous message for those like the crowd who don't have ears to hear. But for those who would hear it, it's actually quite simple, isn't it? I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I'm the bread. And without confusion, he tells them very plainly what we are to do with this bread. What is it? We come and we believe. To eat and drink is to come and believe. How does one eat this eternal bread from heaven? You come, you draw near to him, and you believe in him. He said, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you with that. That's your duty every day. Come and believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you with this very simple truth. Your duty today is to come and believe. We are saved by faith. Charles Spurgeon writes on this. Excuse me. He says, faith is most pleasing to God because it is the comprehensive summary of all true work. I know what some have asked. Is that all we have to do to be saved? Are we simply and only to believe in Christ? That is, entrust ourselves to him? Yes, that's all. Yet within it, within faith, are inconceivable mysteries of goodness. What is more, all the graces come out of faith in due time, for faith sums up the whole of the Christian life. Jesus is telling us, let's not miss it, he's telling us the path to eternal life. And don't you just love Jesus' posture here? What does Jesus want you to do for him? Notice it's not perform. It's not duty. It's not prove yourself to him. Jesus' command in John 6 is not go and do, right? What is it? It's come and receive. You have death in you. I have life in me. I'll take yours if you take mine. That's what Jesus is saying. Come and take it. Listen, Jesus knows that sinners are worn down by their sin. Jesus knows that you are sin sick, that you are soul weary. He knows that you can't do anything to feed yourself spiritually apart from him. Have you ever tried? It's exhausting. So what does he command? Go out and get it. No. Come and believe. Come and trust. Trust that on the cross... Jesus has secured the salvation that you could never secure in a million lifetimes. The reality is that without food, without bread, your body will weaken and die. And in the same way, without spiritual food, your soul will weaken and die. You need spiritual food in order to live. And this is so crucial. What is that spiritual food that will keep you alive? Think about it. What would your answer be? What is the spiritual food that keeps you alive? 
What is it that you're supposed to cast your soul on in faith that will keep you spiritually alive? Notice John 6, it is not living for Jesus. Notice it is not serving Jesus. Notice that it is very emphatically not the law and its demands. Your spiritual food, Christian, the thing that keeps you alive is not what you do for Jesus. Your spiritual food is Jesus. There is nowhere and there is no one else to go to for spiritual life. There is no other power to save. It's only Jesus. And that's why spiritual disciplines, religious exercises, however religiously, faithfully performed, if they are disconnected from Jesus, they are lifeless. They're empty. They're worthless. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? We need to, we got to realize that it is possible to live nearly perfectly disciplined Christian lives without actually casting our faith on Christ. What do you think a Mormon is? It's possible to live a life full of spiritual activities that do nothing to actually connect us to the source of life, Christ. Your soul needs life, and that life is only in Christ. So by all means, go to Bible study. Show up when the doors are open to study God's word. Wake up early to read and to pray. Come to church. Come to classes. Learn about evangelism. Be equipped for the life uh, of a Christian. Come to the Lord's table. Do all these things, but do them as acts of faith by which you feed, not on the duties themselves, but on Christ. It's a relevant question. Where have you been searching for soul satisfaction? The Bible gives you permission to stop looking around and be satisfied in Christ. Think about it. He has already come to you. You do not have to cross a sea. You do not have to ascend to heaven to get this bread. It has come to you. So now come to him. You come. Come and eat. Come and believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that his work on the cross was to cover your sins. Believe that he paid the price for your sin. Believe that he has endured your death. Believe that he is resurrected from the dead, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that you sit right there with him, even now, by faith. Believe that. That'll give you life. That'll get you through Monday. Come and believe. And what will happen when you do? This is the third and final question. What happens when we eat? Jesus said to them, I am the bread and the life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What is Jesus' promise to those who come and believe in him? You won't go hungry. You'll be done with thirst. And again, remember, he's not, he's not speaking of the physical realm here, right? We've pressed through that, and we're exploded into the spiritual realm of eternity. He's speaking of your very soul. And this, by the way, is the very message and the promise of everything that's come before the Gospels and the prophets. Think about it. From the onset of sin in Genesis 3, so that is from the onset of spiritual hunger and thirst, the promise has been that one day the Lord will make a way for this hunger to be met and this thirst 
to be quenched. Listen to the words of Isaiah 55. Just listen to this. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Don't you love this? What is the call of God in and through this prophet? It's a question. Why are you working so, why are you working so hard for something that will never satisfy you? Come and eat so that your soul may live. Come and eat the thing that will quench your thirst and quell your hunger forever. We get to the Gospels. What's Jesus' message? I'm the bread. Eat me. You'll never hunger again. And the message doesn't stop there. It runs from the prophets to the gospel straight on through to eternity. In Revelation 7, John is given the vision of people coming out of the pain of this world to be gathered in worship around the throne of God. And what does he say about them? Why, why do people in heaven live in such a blessed state? Revelation 7, 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's the good news of the gospel? What, what do you get when you eat the bread of heaven? You get God. When you cast your faith on Christ for salvation, for redemption, what's happening is that your soul is coming home. It's finding the one by whom and for whom it was made. We should all consider the question of Isaiah 55. Why are you working so hard for that which will not satisfy you. Why are so many, Christ, so many of us Christians so consumed with working so hard for good things that the Bible promises will not satisfy us? Why do we work so ultimately for non-ultimate things? Why do we always need more? More salary, more house, more health, more popularity, more acceptance. Why do we keep logging on to social media platforms that we know just leave us thirsty and wilted? If we've got the bread of life, why is it that we feel so famished? Can the answer be anything other than the fact that whatever we're doing in this life, there are times when many of us are simply not feeding on Christ the way that he's invited us to. Everyone here, Christian, non-Christian, the gospel on offer here today in the person of Jesus is an invitation to spiritual, to soul rest. Jesus is the everlasting, he's the all-satisfying bread of life. Come and eat.
come and believe that he has lived a perfectly righteous life required by God's law. You don't have to be perfect. Did you know that? You can accept that Jesus is the perfect one on your behalf. Come and trust that he died the death required by the penalty of sin. You don't have to condemn yourself if you're in Christ. Did you know that? Christ has been condemned in your place. Come and believe that that death was, was given to give you life. Whatever, whatever else it is that we're finding ourselves working for in this life, whatever it is we're working for that we think will fill us up, we can, we can drop it and we can come to Christ. We must today and every day. That is the freedom of the gospel. Jesus is what your soul was made for. Come to him now. Learn more of him every day. See him, love him, cherish him. Search the scriptures for him. Abide in him. Cast your faith on him. God the Father wants so badly to give us life. And because of this, he has sent us bread from heaven. Jesus is the bread. Life is in him. We can stop looking anywhere else for it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we see your love for us in this passage. We, uh, we confess that, uh, that so often we overlook just the very basic blessing of life that's on offer for us in Christ. Lord, help us to return to the simplicity of the gospel message that our calling right now and every day is to come and believe, to cast our faith on you once and for all and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.